Well, it's my privilege to be with you this morning. I, um, I have the opportunity, the privilege of speaking in churches all over the country, all over the world. Um, almost every Sunday I'm in a different church, in a different state, somewhere else. And uh, so I, over the years of doing that, I, I kind of have my spiritual church antennas that I can put out and I can be still in the church parking lot and already have a sense of what, I'm, what, what I may be in for during the service today. And uh, let me just tell you, I, this morning my, my spiritual antenna have been sort of overloaded with uh, this church and you as a people and what the Spirit of God is obviously doing here and what a privilege for me to be with you. I, and I appreciate so much your pastor. Um, you know, I, I meet a lot of pastors uh, over the course of uh, my travels. And, uh, and just how I want you to know how impressed I am with him, not only for his love for God, but also for his love for you. And as, uh, and as uh, Cody mentioned, he um, he's right now has a leadership coach that our ministry provides. And it's just a way to come alongside leaders and just help them to just see how God wants to make them still a better leader than they are already. And uh, I'll tell you something, uh, I've I've yet to meet a perfect pastor. And I was a pastor at one point, I can testify. (laughs) I've never met a perfect pastor yet, but but I'm always uh, encouraged when I find a pastor who wants to keep growing. And uh, my father always said, uh, every time I heard my father speak to a church, he would always say, you can have any pastor you're willing to pray him to become. And I, I hope that you're continuing to pray, as I know you are, that uh, he will become all the man of God that you need him to be and that God wants him to be. And so what a joy for me to be with you this morning. And, and as the, your pastor shared, some of you may have had a difficult week this week. One thing I've discovered about God is that um, no matter how bad my week has been, no matter how difficult life may have been, I'm always just one encounter with God away from an entirely transformed life. And I don't know, your, your walk with God right now may not be what you know it ought to be, but you're one encounter with God away from having the best walk with God you've ever had. Aren't you grateful that no matter how far you might sink, no matter how dark things might get, that you're one encounter with God away? Now, There's a difference between having an encounter with a church service and having an encounter with the living God. You can attend church every week and leave the same. But when you come face to face with the living God, you can't remain the same. And so my prayer for you, as I know has already been said, is not that you would come and have an encounter with a a preacher or a service or a song set, but before you leave today, you'd have a sense, I just heard from the living God and he has something for me. And that's, uh, that's certainly my prayer for you this morning. I, I love the church. I, I, I've been in the church, ministering to the church all my life. I was, my father was a pastor. My earliest memories are of uh, being in church. Uh, my, my, if I can try to remember back as far as I can as a child, it's being at church. It's watching God's people. And um, in fact, it's probably not surprising then to you that when I was a very young child, maybe four years old or so, uh, my favorite game to play was church. If, I, if my brother Tom, who was a year younger than me, if the two of us were trying to think what, what game should we play, our go-to, now sometimes we did like to fight monsters and bad guys, but, but our number one thing we liked to do was to play church. And we had a small bedroom, we had a bunk bed that we slept in, 
And we would, we would climb up onto the top bunk and we would conduct church services. Now, I was the oldest brother, so I was the preacher. My brother led the worship. He later told me that he said, I just let you do that, he said, because he said, I know that when we get to heaven, they won't need preachers anymore, but there'll be a lot of worshiping going on. And he was, <laughs> he was positioning himself for a long-term management position. And, and, and then we had to get a congregation. We didn't have a very large room, and so we only could fit one chair down below on the, on the floor space. And so we, did, we didn't have a large congregation. But we would look for one person willing to be our congregation. And it all, always ultimately was our mother. She would graciously come and take a seat. And then we'd begin our, 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 our worship time. And, and, and we'd begin by my brother making announcements. Now we were only preschoolers, but even at that tender age, we understood that you could not worship God without first making announcements. And so we would, he would make some announcements and he would say, immediately after the service today, we'll have a, a ice cream potluck fellowship. We hope that all of you will bring your favorite ice cream to that event. And, and then we'd begin singing and we'd sing all the children's songs that we, we knew at that time. And my mother had a great voice. She would just belt out those, the, 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 the lyrics along with us and fill that room with her great voice. And once we had exhausted our musical repertoire, uh, my brother would say, now our pastor is going to come and deliver God's word to us today. Now I was four, I, I, I was actually illiterate at that point. I couldn't read or write, but uh, I did have a children's Bible and it had pictures in it. And I knew by the pictures what Bible story these words were talking about. And, uh, and I, I couldn't read or write, but I had taken a piece of paper, I had a crayon, and I had sketched out with symbols and markings, basically a rudimentary outline that I, I, I knew what I should talk about. And, uh, and, but it took a lot of work putting sermon uh, notes together when you can't read or write, so I only had one, one set of notes. So it mattered not uh, how many times I preached uh, in services, it was always the same sermon. And, uh, but, but, I would, but I would preach that sermon with all my heart. I'd preach it with passion, with a sense of urgency. And the, the title of the sermon was The Sin of Spanking Your Children. <laughs> and I would say there... I would say there may be some here today who have committed this horrible sin against Almighty God and against your own flesh and blood. And even now, God may be pleading with you to turn back from your wicked and evil ways. And uh, I would feel compelled to have an altar call so that people could be made right with the Lord right then and there. And when no one walked the aisle during the first couple of verses, I'd pause the music and say, now folks, we're not in any hurry. We're just gonna continue to sing until everyone has been made right with the Lord. And eventually, to bring closure to that experience, my mother would walk the aisle. She'd rededicate her life and promise to be a better mother in the future. And we would uh, close the service rejoicing in God's goodness to us that morning and uh, convene then to have ice cream fellowship. Uh, unfortunately, it never took my mother all that long to backslide. <laughs> and, uh, and we would have to have another service. <laughs> I remember after a particularly unpleasant week of discipline, my brother coming and saying, Richard, I, I, these, uh, these uh, services just aren't seeming to change mom. Well, I think she needs a whole revival meeting or something. But, uh, but even as preschoolers, you know, we had, we had this sort of preschool view of church. I was a pastor's kid, so I'd, every Sunday I, I, I witnessed what happened at church. But uh, my, my initial thought was, well, you know, church is all about you conduct a service, everybody goes away happy and godly, and it's great. And uh, of course, as I got older, I realized, well, there's a lot more that happens at church than that. And I began even in trying to just get my mother 
onto the, 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 the right side of, of her obedience with God to realize people struggle. Uh, it's not always clean. It's, it's, sometimes it's messy. At times it's disappointing. And uh, as I grew up in a pastor's home, I saw some really disappointing things happen in church. And I think the reason that those things happen are twofold. One is uh, because the church consisted of imperfect people. People that had been broken when they walked in the door. People that had been scarred by sin and problems of their past. Who were susceptible to temptation. Who allowed the flesh oftentimes to control what they did. And, uh, and so we were a group of imperfect people trying to honor God and serve him in the church. And, um, but also problems happen in the church because Satan hates the church. Uh, God doesn't have plan B. The church is God's only plan to redeem humanity. He doesn't have a backup if the church isn't what the church ought to be. Um, and Satan knows that, and Satan hates the church. And we just need to be reminded, even as glorious and loving as it can be to come to church on Sunday, we need to know that this church has an enemy who hates you and will destroy you if he can. And knowing that, all the more reason to be all the church God wants us to be. Because we're surrounded by darkness. And darkness has a way of permeating its way in wherever it gets a, a toehold. And so I want you to look this morning at God's, God, the way to, how does God work with ordinary people who fail, who, who stumble, who get it wrong? It, it's actually really amazing if you consider that for thousands of years, God has done his work through ordinary people just like you and me. I mean, if, if, if the, 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 the future of Christianity rested upon me always doing the right thing, Christianity would be in jeopardy. And yet somehow, century after century, God just keeps using ordinary, sinful, broken people, and he keeps expanding his kingdom around the world. So I want you to see how he does it for a few moments. And if you've ever gone through experiencing God, uh, my dad's famous book, you, you'll be very familiar with the story of Moses. And uh, Moses, his story, we find it, especially in Exodus chapter 3, where I want us to look uh, for the next few moments. And just look and see how God used an ordinary, broken person to do some amazing things. In Exodus 3, it, uh, the first verse says, meanwhile. And of course, when you see a word like meanwhile at the beginning of a chapter, you need to ask, what do, what do you mean meanwhile? What was happening before the while or before the mean? And, and you have to go up a couple of verses. Uh, and of course, in, in chapter 2, it tells about Moses thinking that uh, he was somebody, that he was, he'd gone to the best schools, uh, that everybody told him, his, his older sister, his parents, all told him about that God had special plans for his life. He, he saw himself as a deliverer. He just assumed that anyone as talented and gifted and well-educated as him, God would certainly want to use in a powerful way. And one day, his passion got the better of him. His anger got the better of him. And, and out of anger, he, he, he killed an Egyptian who was oppressing some of uh, Moses' people, the Hebrews. And all of a sudden, he's a, a fugitive. Pharaoh wants to kill him. Moses has to flee into the desert. This man, when he was young, he thought that uh, he was got a gift to God's people. 
Now he's running for his life, realizing all of his plans he'd had as a, a young person were, were finished, were done. Uh, he'd never become the man he always dreamed he would be. He would never accomplish in his life what he always thought he would. And so he's in the desert. And you get uh, in chapter 2 down at verse 23, and it says, After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of all the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the Israelites, and God knew. That is what comes right before meanwhile. And what that's telling you is that God sees the suffering of the nation of Israel. He sees his people, they're not what they ought to be. They're not free. They're in bondage. They're crying out to him. And aren't you glad that the Bible lets us know that although we will go through difficult times just like the Israelites did, God sees it all. God hears it all. You never, when you go to pray, you never have to inform God, kind of get him up to speed on what's going on in your life. He's seen it. He's heard it. He's there. He knows what you're going through. You don't have to come to church and fill God in on how your week went. He could fill you in on details you weren't aware of, but you won't inform him. And so it says here, God had heard the anguish, the pain, the suffering, the brokenness, and it moved him. Folks, just because God doesn't act as quickly as you'd like him to, don't ever think it's because he's not aware or that he doesn't care. God's timing is always perfect. It's usually later than my timing, but it's always perfect. And God said, I, I've seen it all. And so you, you by the way, do you, do you feel like God sees what's going on in America today? You, do, does God, do you think God's aware of what's on the news every evening? The sin, the brokenness, the anger, the protests, the divisions, the ungodliness, the mocking of God's very name, the mocking of God's word. Do you think God needs to be informed? Does anyone here need to run home and quickly pray and say, God, just so you know what's going on here on earth, you don't have to inform him. It's all risen up to him. He's seen it all. And do you know what happens when God sees a problem in a nation? Do you know what happens, has happened throughout the entire Bible and throughout all of human history? Every time God sees a nation in trouble, he raises up people to serve him, to be his instrument. Now God has got legions of angels he could send. When God saw the problem in Egypt, he could have said, I need 10,000 angels right now. Get down there and show those Egyptians who's boss. But that's not typically what God does. God uses people just like you and me. And so when the cry of the people rose up to God, we get to verse one of chapter three, and it says, meanwhile, while those cries have been going up to God, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, father Jethro, the priest of Midian. So, so it's saying, while the nation is in turmoil, while the people are suffering and in bondage, Moses is going to work. Moses is putting in his 40 hours. Moses is just earning a living. Folks, can I just tell you something? God did not put you on this planet just to earn a living. God did not put you on this planet just to pay off your mortgage. 
Uh, nowhere, I've never seen a tombstone yet that said, here lies Joe Smith. Over the course of his life, he just barely managed to pay off his house before he died. That's not why we are on this planet. Uh, while the cries of God's people are rising up to him, and day after day they're saying, will someone not bring us good news? Will someone not help us to know how to be set free? Moses is putting in his eight hours a day. He's just earning his paycheck. He's trying to put some aside for his retirement. And so what does God do? He goes to an ordinary working person and says, uh, I'm calling you. I'm going to use you. And throughout the entire Bible, you'll find over and over again, God's method almost always is to use an ordinary person to do extraordinary things. He finds Moses, and it says that he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, or some translations say to the back side of the wilderness, and came to Horeb, uh, the mountain of God. In other words, he's as far into, he's taken the flock as deep into the desert as you can go. You can't go anymore to a more obscure place. In the course of his working day, his working year, this was the most tedious time when he was the farthest away from home, the farthest away from friends, when his job took him where he was all alone. All he can think about is work. All, his only companions are sheep. And when he's in the, the depths of his work life, all of a sudden he hears from God. Isn't it amazing that so often when God speaks to us, it's not in the church building, it's in the workplace? Jesus could have been waiting outside the synagogue to find Peter, James, and Andrew, and John, couldn't he? He could have walked over during the, the, the greeting time in the synagogue and said, James, John, I need you to come with me. Glad I found you here at church today. But where does he find them? Mending their nets. They're fishermen. They're right in the midst of the most mundane part of their job mending smelly, broken, twisted nets. And all of a sudden there's Jesus saying, come with me, we're gonna go change the world. <laughs> and I'm gonna use you to do it. Unbelievable. No one would have ever thought those fishermen could change anything, let alone the world. And so he finds Moses at the back of the desert. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? And, and the New King James translation, I use that a lot. And that says, Moses said, I, I must turn aside. And verse 4 says, and when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside, then God spoke. Folks, I don't want you to miss that. God does not speak to Moses until he's turned aside. As long as you're worried about work and not turning aside, you, you, all you may hear is what you hear at work. But the moment you turn aside, suddenly you start hearing God. By being here this morning, you know what you've done? You've turned aside. Sunday mornings are turning aside. In the morning when you have a quiet time, that's turning aside. Uh, you need to build time in your life to turn aside if you want to hear from God. Folks, if you haven't heard from God lately, I suggest you turn aside soon and stay in God's presence long enough to hear what he's trying to say. And so Moses, I, I have, I've always wondered at this point, when, when Mo, see, if I were God and I, and I wanted to get Moses' attention, I would have put a burning bush right in front of him so he couldn't miss it. Moses would be walking along and all of a sudden, whoa, I almost stepped in a burning bush. And then I would have spoken to him. 
But God doesn't put the burning bush right in front of him. He puts it off to the side. So as long, Moses has to decide, do I just put in another work day like I always have? Or am I going to turn aside and let God just interrupt my life? Folks, let me tell you something. He's God. He has a right to interrupt your life anytime he chooses to. And I've always wondered, what if Moses hadn't turned aside? What if Moses had said, I've just, my, my calendar is full, my, my day is crammed already, I don't have time for anything more. See, Moses doesn't know what's at stake. To, to Moses, all it is is a burning bush. What he doesn't realize is there's a whole nation of people in bondage who are suffering, who desperately need Moses to hear what God has to say to him. And don't ever think that your walk with God is just about you. Your walk with God is not just about you being happy and you going to heaven one day when you die. God called you because there's other people who need you to walk with God. They need you to hear from God. If Moses had not turned aside and heard from God, we can only wonder how many more people would have continued to suffer. You can't afford not to listen to what God's saying to you. It will cost not just you if you do, It'll cost everyone else that God would have blessed through you had you heard what God was trying to say. And so God says to Moses, Moses, Moses. And why does God say his name twice? Folks, when your mother was calling you as a child, did she ever use your full name? You knew what that meant, right? If she brought your middle name into the picture, that was, that was never a good thing. Um, this is God raising his voice. This is God making sure he gets his attention. If he just, now, by the way, if God just used your name once, that ought to have you coming on the run, should it not? But when God says your name twice, you better drop everything and give God your full attention. What God was saying is, Moses, you can't afford to not listen to what I'm about to tell you. Moses, when, you, when God uses your name twice, he's saying you better pay attention. In the, in, in the Gospels, that's like Jesus saying, verily, verily. What he's saying is, when I'm, listen up. That's, that's what that means. Because <laughs> I'm going to tell you something that's going to change your life. And uh, I've, I've often, we know what I've discovered about God and his voice. God's preferred method of speaking to you and me is to whisper. If God can just whisper right into your soul, that's, I think that's his preferred method. Now, if, if you can't hear the whispers, God has a way of raising his voice until you do hear it. And my prayer has always been, God, I pray that I'm so in tune with your voice that even if I'm in a crowded room running through a busy airport in the middle of my workday, when you start whispering, I pray I'm so tuned into you that every other voice fades in the background and all I hear is you and your voice. I, I've, I've had to say, God, I pray that I, I walk with you so lovingly and obediently that you never have to raise your voice with me. I pray you never have to use my name more than once. One Richard, hopefully, is enough. I hope you don't have to say Richard, Richard. But Moses has been away from God for a while, we suspect. In fact, he's a murderer. Have you noticed that, three, that probably three of the greatest people God ever used in the Bible were all murderers? Uh, David was complicit in murdering someone. Paul was uh, signed off, provided cover for the murder of Stephen. Moses murdered an Egyptian. You, it doesn't get much worse than that, does it? Killing somebody, killing someone that's innocent, especially. 
Um, and yet God did some of the greatest work he ever did through some of the worst sinners in the Bible. Don't ever try to convince yourself that you somehow have messed up so badly God can't use you. I think that's why God tells these stories. To say, no, you think you're bad. Let me show you who I used in the Bible. <laughs> you, you were a, a saint compared to this guy. Uh, and, and look what I did through him. And so he, he says, Moses, Moses. And uh, Moses answered, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Do you know what I think God's saying there? He's saying, you, you be, don't you get familiar with me. <laughs> don't you start getting casual with me. Now, folks, understand something. There's no one in the universe who loves you more than God does. But at the same time, he's God. Don't ever lose your wonder that a God who could create a universe wants to talk to you. And I fear sometimes we walk into Sunday morning church and don't bother to take our sandals off. When, when you're in God's presence, there ought to be a trembling in your spirit as you realize one word from God could forever change my life. One word from God and my whole future can change. One word from God and I could be forever set free of that sin that has kept me in bondage all my life. There ought to be, a, when, we, when we get to the door, there ought to just, we ought to be just taking off our spiritual sandals and saying, I'm on holy ground right now. God is here. And uh, anywhere where God is, you better be ready and hold on to your hat for what comes next. He says, Moses, you're being a little too, too familiar with me. I'm God. I'm about to tell you something that will forever change your life. Take your shoes off. Get in a position to receive what I'm about to say. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why, why does he say that, by the way? That's kind of a long introduction. Why, does, why doesn't he just say, I'm God? Why isn't that enough? Why does he say, I'm the God of your father, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob? Why, did, why that preamble? Why that introduction? I think what God's saying is, you remember all those mir miraculous things I did with an ordinary guy named Abraham? Well, I'm that God. And do you remember Isaac and all those great things I did in his life? Well, that's, that was me. And do you remember all the things I, that God did through Jacob? Well, that was me too. And guess who's talking to you right now? That very same God. The same God who parted a Red Sea is the God who's speaking to you and me right now. The God who raised the dead, who provided for a starving widow when she had no groceries in her pantry, that's the very same God who says, I'll provide for you. Sometimes God has to remind us, I, I, I don't, I'm not a different God with you. It's not like, well, my God is not nearly as powerful as the pastor's God. You know, sometimes we, we think, and I understand why we do this, but sometimes we think, well, I need to get the pastor to pray for this because he's the pastor. Well, you know what? Your pastor's God is the same God that's your God. You're, the pastor's God's no more powerful than your God. Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, your pastor is your God. And when he speaks to you, he can do just as much through your life as he's done through any saint at any time in history. And so that's what God's saying to Moses. He's saying, I'm the God who's, all those miracles you heard about in the past, now this is your chance to see what I can do in your life as well. And he goes on and says, um, then the Lord said, I've observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
uh, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Uh, so because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I've also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Uh, I, I tell you what, I'm kind of surprised at about that point uh, Moses didn't give an amen. Uh, you're, you've come to rescue the, the, the Israelites? Amen! That's what, we've been praying for that. That's wonderful. It all sounded good, didn't it, until verse 10. Therefore, go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Uh-oh. <laughs> Moses said, wait a minute here. I, I, I've been a fugitive for the last 40 years. I'm a murderer. The, the, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm on the, the wanted list. Go to any post office in Egypt. There's a picture of me on the wall saying, most wanted. I can't go back there. It cost me my life. All I've all I've talked to for the most part the last 40 years are sheep. I can't preach. I can't speak to a king. I'm a nobody. I'm a I've been a failure for 40 years. How does a 40-year-long failure go into the king's court and tell him you've got a word from God? I'm not a preacher. Uh, God, I, I messed up. Maybe 40 years ago I could have done this, but not now. And so in verse uh, 11 it says, But Moses asked God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt. God just said, Moses, you could herd sheep for 40 more years, but you'll never begin to experience what you could if you'll just obey me and the next thing I tell you to do. Uh, I'll tell you what, at the, you know, I've gotten to an age now where when you're younger, Oftentimes, rather insignificant things can be a big deal, you know. I, I used to be the captain of a sports team in high school. That used to be a big deal. <laughs> so much more important things have happened in my life since. Now, as I used to get older, you realize what really mattered in my life and what didn't. Things that I used to think were so important, I used to worry about so much. As you get older, you realize, you know what, I don't even think about that anymore. That was so insignificant. And what God was saying to Moses is, you've been just, just putting in years just putting in years in your life. But let me tell you something that you'll never forget. Can you imagine, of all, when, you, when you ask Moses later, tell me, what are your memories in your life? Do you think he said, well, let me just tell you year by year what it was like herding sheep for 40 years. Do you think that was the highlight? You know what the highlight was for him? The highlight is what he did that God told him to do when he was a part of God's work. And I'm not, I'm not trying to put down the fact that we all need to work, we all need to earn a living. And if you do it for the Lord, God can use you to do some significant things. But what really matters in your life is what you did for God. That's what you'll never forget. And so God is turning to Moses and saying, let me, let me show you what I can do through your ordinary life. Folks, can I just tell you that I, I've had the privilege of traveling around the world and just seeing ordinary people and what God has done. And I know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still at work today. He's still speaking to people today. And he's saying, I've, I've watched the evening news. I know what's going on in America right now. The cries of people in America in bondage are coming up to my ears. I see the brokenness, the broken lives, the disillusionment, the people who have been deceived by darkness and evil and are throwing away the precious life that I've given them. Do you understand young people today, there's a, a, a spike, a dramatic spike in suicides across America today. Young people in 
a, a nation like ours saying, I see no reason to live. And whenever things grow dark in a nation, you can take it to the bank. God is going to start getting his people's attention and saying, I, I have an assignment for you too. Let me show you what I want to do through your life. I, uh, I, met a, I was in a church in Brazil several years ago. Uh, there was a farmer in Illinois. Was out on his, he, he would be out on his combine, on his tractors, doing farm work. And he'd be praying. And, and, and as he prayed and driving his tractor, he felt like God said, uh, that, that being a farmer is a noble thing. But at the end of your life, how many fields you plowed, how many truckloads of grain you brought in, uh, won't really matter. What will matter is what you've done for me. God said, I want you to use your farming now to, to start growing people and changing the world. And that began a journey for him. He ultimately decided that if he were to move to Brazil, he could farm in Brazil and, and be a witness in Brazil at the same time. So he actually picks up from Illinois, moves to northern uh, Brazil, gets, he, he comes to a community that's uh, the, the, near the head of the Amazon River, and he just starts telling people about Jesus. Well, people start coming to know Christ and a church is birthed uh, that he initially pastors and then he, he hands that off to his son and he goes into the interior to start other churches. And by the time I got there, there in that city, the city had 120,000 people and that church averaged 12,000 people in attendance. I got there and I, I was doing leadership training uh, for, the, for his staff and the people in that area. And they, when I, before I went there, they said, now, could you just stay over Sunday morning and preach for us? I said, oh, that'd be, that'd be great. I'd love to preach to your church. And I said, now, you have to understand, we have six services. Uh, and, and they said, and each service is two hours. Uh, and so I, but they said, listen, we'll, so the first service started at seven in the morning. Went seven to nine, nine to 11, 11 till one. Then they took two hours off for lunch. And then from three to five, five to seven, seven to nine, six two-hour services. They said, now we'll, we'll videotape the first service, your, your first sermon. And so if you don't, you basically they said, so if you wimp out and can't preach six times, we'll just show a video, whatever point. Of course, I'm way too egotistical to have them do that. So I, I but I'd go back and, uh, and I, I would, I'd try to get refreshed in between. But I'll tell you what, that church had identified something like 47,000 villages on the Amazon River. And they had a goal to start a church in every solitary village along that river. And uh, they had pastors. I, they took me out on boats. Uh, one, they, they had all these river pastors. And this one river pastor, they'd say, okay, you have this stretch of the river. I went out with one river pastor. He said, I've, I've been assigned 88 villages. I'm, re I'm responsible to get a church started in 88 villages. And when I got there, I said, well, how many do you have so far? He said, oh, keep praying. He said, I've only got 57 churches started in 57 villages. I still have more to go. And uh, they had planes. They had the, the, the senior pastor at that point, who was uh, the son of this farmer, had just decided to, to go move 1,100 miles away and uh, to start a church at the other end of the Amazon, and then they would just meet in the middle. They would just send missionaries from both churches up the river until they finally had accomplished the, the assignment. The pastor said to his, his church, I need, a, I need a hundred of the best members of this church to, to, to quit their jobs, sell their homes, and move 1,100 miles with me to the other end of this river. We're going to claim this whole river for Christ. And a, a, over a hundred of his best members said, we'll, we'll leave our jobs, we'll sell our house, and we'll move our families. 
We, we, we want our life to make a difference for our nation. And I stood there and, I, and I, as, as I preached six services, every service, there were 2,000 people in every service. And every service, the altar was just filled with people saying, and what does God want us to do? We're ready to go to. And I thought, this began with one farmer in Illinois who said, God, I think you want me more to do more than just plow another straight row in my field. I think there's more you have for me. I, uh, I was in Malaysia several years ago and uh, I was in Kuala Lumpur. Of course, Malaysia is a, is a communist, or not communist, a Muslim country. And uh, I was with my daughter. We, I was going to preach at an evening service. They took me to this big uh, office building. It was many stories high. And apparently this church rented about six, seven uh, floors of this building. They didn't have their own church building. It's difficult in the Muslim country to have your own church building. So they rented this office space. And so we get there. We come from another part of the country. And, and, and the, we get there. We can hear the music just pounding in this big, big open area. Uh, we, 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 we go up the elevator, the elevator door opens, and we see about 2,000 young people in this uh, service, all praising God with all their heart. It's a very young congregation. It was a Saturday night crowd, and uh, a lot of teenagers, a lot of college-age students, uh, young families, just filled to the room. This, I'm thinking, this is a Muslim country. It's 2,000 young people just praising God with all their heart. They, they led us up to the, we're the second row from the front because I was going to speak and uh, they're getting me in position. And I noticed out of all these young people that there's this one guy who's older. Now, I don't say older. He's probably like in his early, mid-60s, which that, then it seemed old. Now it seems quite young to me. But, uh, but this guy in his 60s is on the front row and, and they're singing these really upbeat worship songs. And this guy, this older guy is jumping up and down and got his hands in the air. And I'm thinking, wow, this guy, he just, does, does, this guy doesn't want to grow up, does he? <laughs> he's uh, old enough to be all the grandfather to some of these people here. And he's just praising away. Well, the, the music stops and that guy goes to the microphone. I realize he's the pastor. And, uh, and afterward, he tells me a story. He, he was a medical doctor. He had a good living, had a nice house, comfortable lifestyle. And he actually went through Experiencing God, the book my dad wrote. And he said, as he went through that, God just said, I didn't, I didn't just put you on this earth to mend people physically. I want you to be helping mend broken people spiritually, emotionally as well. And so he, he offered an Experiencing God class and he had his wife and one other woman, a widow, came. There's three of them in a class. And as they went through that material, they, they all felt that God said, you need to start a church. Now, starting a church anywhere is difficult. Starting a church in a Muslim country is very difficult. And he looked and said, I'm a doctor. I've got a comfortable life. Why would I mess all that up? Starting a church. I'm, I'm not trained to be a pastor. I'm trained to be a medical doctor. But he said, I could, not, I could not get away from the fact God had just said, I'm going to give you the invitation of your life. Invest your life in changing the world, setting people free, uh, dispelling the darkness that has enslaved an entire nation. And, um, and he got all emotional as he's telling me the story. And he looked around at 2,000 young people in that room. And he said, and this is what God did. He said, the best decision of my life was saying, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life playing it safe when my nation is hurting this way. And I just said, God, would you just keep doing that? And would you do that in America <coughs> like you've done that here in Malaysia, 
in Brazil. Let me tell you just one last story. I want you to see there's a, you can put a, this is a I've got a picture. This is a, a friend of mine I met in North Carolina. Her name's Nell. Nell was as ordinary as you'll ever meet. She, uh, she was the kind of person who went to church every Sunday. She always sat in the very same place. I, do any of you do that? Do you always sit in the same place? She always sat in the same, there was no name tag there, but you'd know if you accidentally sat in her seat. And she was there every week. And whenever the church door was open, there she was. Now, like clockwork, Nell was going to be there. One day she was in a horrific car accident with her husband. An 18-wheel truck collided head-on with their, their vehicle. It, it, the, the truck just crushed the, the entire top of the car, just crushed it down upon her, breaking every bone in the lower half of her body. Uh, she was in excru such excruciating agony as that truck is just all of her bones and her legs and feet and ankles have been broken that she actually cried out to God in her, in her pain and said, God, just take me home. She, she literally just wanted to die in that. She said, God, let me die. But I can't, I can't handle this kind of pain. And she's, she later told me, she said, for the first time in my life, I, I felt like God spoke to me. And she said, I felt like God said, I'm not done with you yet now. She thought, done with me? What have you ever done with me? I just go, I just go to, I'm a church attender. You know, there's a, the churches are filled with people who think that their perfect church attendance is going to turn the world upside down for Christ. That just showing up at church every Sunday will somehow make America more godly. That's what she did. Her, her, her ministry was showing up at church and it wasn't doing anything for anybody. She'd gone to church her whole life. She'd never told one person about Jesus. She'd never shared her faith with anyone. She'd never invited anybody to her church. But she was there like clockwork. And in that moment, she sensed God saying, I've got more for you now. Well, eventually Nell's husband died. Nell spends six months in the hospital. She doesn't even get out of the hospital for six months. Finally is released. She's got all kinds of metal parts now. She walks with a limp. Uh, she's crippled up from that. Now she's a widow. And when she's 66 years old, she comes to church one Sunday, as was her custom, and they're advertising that there's a witnessing training program going to be offered, and you can sign up to take it. And she's immediately smitten with guilt because she realizes, I'm 66 years old, I've gone to church all my life, I've never told one person, not even a neighbor, not even a colleague at work, how to find salvation in Christ. She said, I need to take that class. But then she has all these doubts, just like Moses. She says, but I'm, I'm just an ordinary, I'm a widow. I'm 66. What if, what if you go to class and you have to memorize stuff? I haven't been in school in over 40 years. I, 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 I can't read books anymore. I can't study. What if there's an, a test? Uh, and, and so for weeks, she wrestles with this. But God won't release her. So she finally signs up for the class. She goes every week. But the last week, instead of uh, learning more about witnessing, the pastor takes her out to make an evangelistic witness, a, a visit. They go to a house and the pastor says, now, Nell, you just, you just pray while I talk to this couple. So she's, she's okay with that. So the pastor starts talking to the couple. She's praying off to the side. All of a sudden, the 15-year-old daughter of that house comes walking through the kitchen. And Nell had been told, if someone comes in to interrupt the conversation, just try to talk to them, keep them busy. So Nell starts talking to this 15-year-old girl. And before long, and she forgets all about her witnessing presentation. She forgets what she's supposed to say. She misquotes a scripture. But she finally kind of stumbles through this presentation and finally looks at the 15-year-old and says, well, would you like to become a Christian? And the 15-year-old says, I think I would. 
And so Nell, there in the kitchen, leads this teenager to faith in Christ. Nell goes home that night, and she says later, that was the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. I've never, eternity will be forever different. There'll be one more person in heaven for eternity because of what God did through my ordinary life. The next day, she went and got to, the, to a Walmart. She bought a little a, a ringed binder, a little, little notebook, and she wrote on page one, number one, she wrote the name of that 15-year-old. She wrote the date. She wrote the details, where it was at her house, the address, how she talked to her in, the, in a kitchen, and woman, the young girl became a Christian. And then she said, God, before I die, just let me add one more name to this book. Let me have two people that go with me to heaven because of me, because of what you did through me. <coughs> well, about a week later, Bell's at a doctor's office, and she sees a woman that seems obviously very distraught, very upset, uh, wiping tears from her eyes. Nell says, are you okay? You seem really upset. The woman says, I'm here to find the results of a biopsy. I'm afraid they're going to find, they found cancer, and I'm scared to death. Nell says, you can't go through that alone. Do you know God? Is God going through this with you? And the woman says, no, but I wish he would. And Nell says, well, I can help you. Before you go get the news, you can be a certain of one thing that God goes with you. And the woman says, tell me what to do. Nell leads her to become a Christian there in the doctor's waiting room. She goes home and gets her book out, writes number two, writes in that woman's name, writes in the date. She says, God, if it's not too, asking too much, if there's still a little time I've got left, would you let me put number three in there? Before long, she's adding people's names regularly that she's personally leading to faith in Christ. In fact, she led so many people to faith in Christ that Liberty University up in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, has actually sent film crews to her house and filmed her telling college students how to lead people to faith in Christ. Uh, they, and uh, so at this point, it's 14 years later. She's 80 there. And uh, I was, she lives about an hour from the Billy Graham Cove uh, Training Center. And I speak there quite often. And so I, I was speaking at the, the Cove and uh, I, I contacted Nell. I said, Nell, could I, my wife and I are here. I'd love just to run over there and see you for an, uh, a little bit. And she said, oh, that'd be great. So, she, so we drove over there. I brought her those flowers. And we, I sat there at her kitchen table. And I said, Nell, you know what I want to see. And so she slid that book with all those names over to me. And that's the book that's sitting in front of us. And I wanted to know in 14 years uh, how many people she had personally led to become a Christian. So I start flipping through that book and every page I turn, there's more names, there's more numbers. I finally turn right to the very last page in the book. There's numbers all the way to the end of the book. But, but when she started writing names, she had a whole book with one name. So she would add names on every other line. But she got, that took her to the end of the book. So she went back to the beginning of the book and started entering names in the spaces. And so I'm trying to find where's the last space that's filled in? Where's the last number? I finally found it at that place. And I looked at the last number. These are not people she's witnessed to. These are people that have actually prayed with her to become a Christian. The last number at that point was 3,147. I said, no. For 66 years, you never even told anyone about Jesus. How do you explain since 66, you've now personally led 3,147 people to become a Christian? She said, one day, God just convinced me that he'd always had more he wanted to do through my life than what he had done. I finally had enough sense to say, yes, Lord. And he said, can, she said, can you believe it? 
Now she's so crippled up, she can't get out of the house much. And, uh, and she just wept. She said, Richard, I just so desperately want to get out and tell people about Jesus. I can't get out as well like I used to. And uh, she said the other day, someone called her house, had the wrong number. She asked for Betty. She said, I'm sorry, there's no Betty here. And the, 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 the caller said, oh, I'm sorry, I must have the wrong number. And Ella said, well, maybe you don't have the wrong number. Maybe you were meant to call me. Do you know Jesus? She's witnessing the wrong number. Telemarketers dread calling her because... They could end up getting saved, trying to sell her a timeshare. Folks, uh, well, can I just tell you something? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses is the God of you. And that same God says, I know why I put you on this planet. It was not just to earn a living. It was not just to get by. Every time I talk to someone and ask a Christian, how are you doing? They say, I'm just hanging in there. I say, you know what? God didn't put you on the planet to hang in there. God put you on the planet to make a difference, to be someone God could put his hand on and say, let me use you to change the world for the better. America needs God's people to not keep doing what they've always done, to not say, well, I'm just a sheep herder. I'm just a fisherman, just a businessman, just a carpenter. God would say, and I've used all of those kinds of people to change the world, and now I want to use you. I'm going to take just a moment and invite you just to respond uh, as we would close this service this morning. And perhaps even this morning, maybe the Lord has spoken to you and just said, you know what? I could use you too. I need to, I want to use you. But you've got, to, you've got to respond. You've got to be willing to turn aside. You've got to be willing to put aside whatever else you were planning to do and say, God, what is it you would have me to do? Maybe like Nell, you've been someone who's gone to church for a long time and, and you look at the fruit of your church attendance and say, God, I just suspect you, surely you want more for my life than just me showing up at church another Sunday. What is it that you'd have me to do? And maybe you're like Moses saying, trying to convince God that you're too ordinary for him to use you. And God would say, stop talking about you. It's about me. It's not who you are that makes a difference. It's who God is that makes a difference. And God says, trust me, I can use you too. Are you at a place where you as a church would say, our church can stumble along just trying to get by as a church and we could say, God, raise us up to be the church America needs us to be right now. We want to be all the church God would call us to be. So I want to just pray for you and we'll just take a moment as the music plays. I love churches that have places to pray like this and it might be that this morning you just want to come maybe even as a couple and just say, God, we, we just surrender ourselves on this altar to say, if you call us, if you have something for us to do, you, you don't even need to use our name twice. Just when you call, we're going to go ahead and say, say yes right now. So that when you, whenever you tell us what you have next for us, our yes is already on the altar. You just can take that and, and just take it as that's our response to your request. But let me pray with you for a moment.